some of you may know this about me. I'm a big NFL football fan. Woo! Woo. And I know sports illustrations are not the best, but this isn't an illustration, it's a story. So this last week, <laughs> this last week I went to my first live NFL game at Levi Stadium. <laughs> Only I'm not a Niners fan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was rooting for the other team. I, I'm a New York Giants fan. Yes, woo! <laughs> One other person. So I had, I had all my gear on, you know, in blue, and I sort of had two expectations going into this game. One, I expected my team to lose, truthfully. Uh, one of our best players was out with an injury, but also we have not been looking very good this season. So I was just preparing myself for disappointment and the worst. The other was I was expecting there to be some tension and trash talking in the stands. I didn't know how many New York Giants fans would be there, so I was preparing myself for that. So you can imagine how surprised I was when this 49ers fan in our row shared her candy with us. I was like, what? <laughs> Do you feel bad for me? Like, <laughs> but there was some trash talking. This, you know, this one guy was like, you suck, really loud. And I turned around at him and he said, sorry, not, not you, like not just, not your team, just, you know. Yeah, <laughs> very friendly. <laughs> I guess I was expecting some tension and trash talking, not only because NFL fans can be really intense, but also because there's research and studies going around about how people are becoming more rude. Have you seen this? Or maybe you've experienced this? Like the produce aisle at the grocery store can be more tense than football games sometimes. It's becoming more normal for people to talk on their cell phones during a movie. There's a TikTok trending of an airline pilot having to sternly remind people to be respectful to each other and treat each other they want, the way they want to be treated. The dean of the Yale School of Public Health said she's seen more parents justifying their own children bullying other kids. Rudeness is on the rise. And there's a lot of contributing factors, certainly mental health coming out of the pandemic, the breakdown of social norms and connections, the way that social media allows us to say things to people without the consequences that we would experience if we said it in person, and then the increasingly volatile political environment, certainly. All of these things are contributing to a current in our culture that's leading us towards loneliness, isolation, and now rudeness. We don't know how to treat people anymore. We've been going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is the longest, probably most detailed teaching that we get from Jesus in the Bible. And if I was trying to if I was going to try to summarize what this teaching is about, I would say how to live in right relationship with each other and with God. And really that the two are connected. Our relationship with people affects our relationship with God. Our relationship with God affects our relationship with people. And the direction that he gives is not necessarily step-by-step -step guidelines that we apply to every situation, but more a vision of the kind of people we can be how we can be in the world. And I'm grateful for this vision because I think we need it right now. Maybe we don't know another way of relating to each other. 
So let me pray for us before we get into the passage this morning. God, I am so grateful that we can gather together this morning to hear from you, and I pray that you would soften our hearts to topics that can be hard, to really hear your loving and patient voice, to hear how you're leading us, and God, would you give us vision and courage to take the step. We pray these things in your name, amen. So we're jumping into a part of the teaching that has some hard sayings. To give you a little bit of context, we're going to start uh, with verse 31. So Jesus is delivering this teaching to his closest followers, but there's also crowds of people. And you can assume that in the crowds of people, there are people who are sick. They're following Jesus because they want to be healed. There are people who are oppressed. The Roman Empire is occupying their land. There are people in debt because they are heavily taxed. There are people longing and hungry for something different, for restoration. And the section that we're in, Jesus will mention a law that was familiar to them, and he sort of expands on it. And it might seem like he's replacing the law or getting rid of it, but what I think he's really doing is trying to get to the purpose behind it, the heart. Because rules and laws, they can keep you from doing bad, but can they make you a good person? Can they transform your heart? So starting in verse 31, this is what he says. You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. You have also heard that our ancestors were told you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. So there's more to this passage that we're going to cover, but I want to pause here because I'm not actually going to spend much time talking about this passage on divorce and vows. And it's not because I want to skirt away from the issue. It's actually because I think there's a lot to say about this, and I care about it too much. Too much nuance is required to cover this well in seven minutes. So let me say one thing about this teaching on divorce, just as a reminder, that the Sermon on the Mount was never supposed to be specific guidelines that are applied to every situation. It requires wisdom and discernment to know how to live into this vision within a specific circumstance. And the reason that I say that is because I think the specific teaching on divorce has been used and applied in situations that were not appropriate and has caused harm. So let me leave this with you. If you would like more space to talk about this, to process this teaching on divorce, what it means, if you're looking for wisdom or just someone to hear you, anyone on the pastoral staff would love to create that space for you. So that is available. In regards to Jesus's teaching on vows and oaths, I'll just say this briefly, that you might imagine a vow or an oath could help sustain or create trust in a relationship. 
But in this context, people were actually using them deceptively, and it was sort of undermining relationships. So Jesus is pretty simply saying, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Your word matters. What you say matters. Be a person of integrity. All right, let's keep going. Got more to cover. Jesus said, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good and he sends his rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different than anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So not really much to talk about this morning here. So on the one hand, I think some of what Jesus says makes a lot of sense. If you only love people who love you, if you are only kind to people who will return the favor, how much does that speak to your character? Imagine a scenario in which you are trying to assess someone's character. Maybe you're going to hire them, you're going to rent a room to them, you're going to date them, or their kids are, your kids are going to date them, and you want to know what kind of person is this, like their heart, their character. Which speaks more to their character, how they treat their friends, or how they treat their grouchy neighbor, or the waiter who gets their order wrong twice? or the houseless person on the street? Which speaks more to the kind of person they are? I think that part of the teaching makes sense. But on the other hand, what is Jesus really inviting us into here? Can you imagine how this would sound if Jesus delivered this teaching today? You have heard it said, Look out for the coworkers who always have your back and gossip and complain about the ones who don't. You have heard it said, serve the neighbors who can return the favor. You have heard it said, spend most of your time with people who agree with you. Avoid conversations with people who don't unless you can prove you're right and make sure you always have the last word. But I say to you, Love your coworker who undermines you and embarrasses you in front of your boss. Reach out to the grouchy neighbor you've avoided for the last four years. Stay curious in conversation with people who think differently than you and let them have the last word. I imagine that Jesus' teaching would sound something like that. Only what Jesus says is even more intense and there's even more at stake because he's describing situations that were dehumanizing and he's talking to a group of people who are oppressed. 
And I think about a few scenarios that I heard this last week from people I care about, how they were treated poorly, systems that dehumanize them. And honestly, my immediate reaction was not, thank you, God, for sending the sun and the rain on these people who are hurting my friends. It was, God, can you send your anger and punishment over to these people who are hurting my friends? What is Jesus really asking of us? Never to resist an evildoer? Is he just asking us to be a doormat? Just let people get away with bad things. Doesn't it kind of sound like weakness, just being passive, humiliating? Okay, you hit me on one side of the face, here's the other. What do you think Jesus really means? Well, to understand this vision that he's offering, we have to dig into some context here, so stick with me. So let's work out some of these scenarios. Imagine that you are going to hit me on the right side of my face. Just imagine it. I know it's hard to imagine. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and in this context, you would not use your left hand because that was only for unclean tasks. So you're going to use your right hand. If you want to treat me as inferior because you are higher in power or social status, you're going to use the back of your hand to hit me in my right face, the right side of my face. So I turn to the left. What is your option now? How would you hit me logistically? Well, you can't, you're, you can't use the back of your right hand. That's not going to work. You could use the inside, or you could punch me in the face, but that would be treating me as an equal. Probably not something that you're going to do if you're trying to establish that you are higher in power and social status. Is Jesus asking us to be a doormat? Let's work through one more scenario here. Jesus said, if someone's suing you and taking you to court and they want your shirt, and by the way, a better translation of that would be undergarment, give them your coat too. So what, this person's just walking out of court naked? Like, it's helpful to know that if someone is giving out their clothes as collateral for a loan, they are in a lot of debt. There is a system that is working against them. They have no land or goods to give up. All they have is their clothes. And it's helpful to know that actually in this context, it was more taboo for someone to see someone else who is naked than for someone to be naked. You brought shame upon yourself if you caused someone else to be naked. So by walking out of court without your clothes on, you're really challenging and unmasking a system for what it is, dehumanizing. You're turning the shame back on the other person. A while ago, I heard this story about a social worker. I heard this on NPR. And his name was Julio Diaz. He would take the subway home every day after work, and he would always stop one stop early so that he could eat at this diner. And this one specific night, a teenager stopped him, pulled a knife, and asked for his wallet. So Julio gave him his wallet. And as the teenager walked away, he said, hey, I think you forgot something. The teenager turned around, and he, 
He said, what are you talking about? And Julio said, well, if you're going to be out here robbing people all night, it's pretty cold. Do you want my coat too? And the teenager said, why are you doing this? And he said, hey, I just figured if you're willing to risk your freedom for a couple dollars, you probably really need it. I was actually just going to go to this diner and eat if you want to join me. So the teenager went with him and then was kind of surprised when all these people at the diner are saying hi to Julio because he eats there all the time. And he asked him about it and Julio said, well, haven't you been taught that you're supposed to be kind to everybody? So the waiter brought the check and Julio said, well, I guess you're paying. <laughs> so the teenager handed his wallet back. And Julio took out $20 and gave it to the teenager and said, the only thing that I want in return is your knife. So the teenager gave it to him. When you hear stories like this and the scenarios that Jesus is describing in their context, are you thinking, wow, that sounds like weakness. That sounds like letting people walk all over you, just giving up your power, humiliating to me, it sounds empowering. Sounds like holding claim to your dignity that people cannot take from you. It sounds like resisting violence without using violence. It sounds like boundaries. It sounds like turning the shame right back around on the other person. Walter Wink, who's a scholar, he's done a lot of work with this passage, said Jesus is not giving a non-political message of spiritual world transcendence. That is to say, he's not just telling us to rise above this material world and it doesn't matter. Instead, he is formulating a worldly spirituality in which the people at the bottom of society or under the thumb of imperial power learn to recover their humanity. Now, that's not to say that Jesus just wanted them to ignore unjust systems. It's to say he's providing a path for resistance before the system even changes. Some scholars think a better translation of do not resist an evildoer is do not violently resist an evildoer. It's a way to resist evil without using violence. Because the truth is, retribution, getting even, feels good in the moment. Putting someone in their place, proving you're right, having the last word, feels good in the moment. Gossiping and complaining about the coworker that embarrassed you feels good in the moment. Giving the cold shoulder and holding on to resentment can feel like control and power. But it's worth reflecting on what these practices are doing to our heart and character over time. What is the cost? I think the heart of what Jesus is saying in this passage could be captured or summed up by this well-known quote from the author and act activist Bell Hooks. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? A friend of mine, his name is Adam. He used to work in this work environment that was really difficult. 
and toxic, honestly. And there was one colleague of his that nobody liked. And one day my friend Adam was talking to this other guy and this other guy was complaining and saying mean things about the colleague that nobody liked. And my friend Adam said, huh, that's interesting. I think about him differently. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, can you imagine the kind of courage and bravery it takes to show up to work every day knowing nobody likes you? I love that story and give kudos to my friend because not only did he protect the dignity of this colleague that people were excluding and shaming, but he also made space for this other guy who was gossiping to be transformed, invited into something different. Because the guy said that after that conversation, his perception of the colleague changed. He didn't say anything negative about him from then on. It was like my friend Adam just held up a mirror to show him what he was participating in and invite him into something different. I think that's kind of what Jesus means when he says God sends sun on the evil and the good and rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust. That's really great news when we're the ones who mess up and we need God's mercy. We love God's mercy when it's for us. But it, when it's for someone else, to believe that there is no one, should they turn away from evil and towards God, there is no one that's outside of God's mercy? Beyond transformation, that is hard to believe. So how do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet in the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed. A few weeks ago in this series, Brad was talking about being salt and light in the world, the opportunity that we have to be the presence of Jesus, God's love in the world. And I think right now there is a unique opportunity and need for people to be Jesus in the way that they relate to others. to believe in people's capacity to be transformed, to love people in our lives who might be hard to love. That's not to say we don't have boundaries or we let people walk all over us. It is to say that when we follow Jesus, this is where Jesus takes us. That by the power of the spirit of God, forgiveness, and love is possible in circumstances where it would be hard to believe it's so. But these things are really hard to do in the moment. I don't think we just wake up one day and we're Julio Diaz and we're like ready for that kind of situation. It's something that we grow in over time. And so this morning, in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to into a practice that I think can be transformative for our heart, and that is to write a prayer or blessing for someone you don't particularly like. It could be someone you think is very different than you, a difficult coworker, a neighbor you don't know very well, maybe someone who has hurt you at some point. I trust your judgment with who you think you might pray for this morning. You might pray that God would help you over time forgive them, 
You might pray that God would help you see this person the way God sees this person. You might pray that they would just experience God's love and that blessing over them. Because it's the act of prayer that allows us to rely on God's power. Jesus, who loved his enemies, including us, who are all at one point made ourselves enemies of God. So let me pray for us, and then I'm going to invite you into this task, this practice. God, we praise you for the mercy that you have extended to all of us, for the way you love us into being, and you call us into more. So I pray, God, that you would soften our hearts now, open our minds to know who we might pray for this morning. Not just for them, but for us. For our own hearts. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So take a few moments and write out a prayer of blessing, and then I'll come back up and close our time in prayer.